0: This is Dominic Preziosi. President Joe Biden's worthiness to receive communion dominated coverage of the most recent meeting of the U.S. bishops. The debate and the bishop's decision to go ahead with a document on the mystery of the Eucharist and the life of the church has led to considerable conflict over the question of communion for public officials. Commonweal editor-at-large Molly Wilson O'Reilly recently wrote a piece for The Atlantic headlined The Real Threat to American Catholicism, in which she commented on the bishop's fight with Joe Biden over his fitness to receive communion because of his support for legal abortion. She's here today to talk about that piece and to share her thoughts on a number of issues, including what the church should have and still can do in the aftermath of COVID and the Trump presidency. You're listening to The Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Molly. It's great to have you here on the Commonweal Podcast.
1: Hi, Dominic. I am so happy to be here.
0: I want to get right two things. You wrote a piece for the Atlantic Monthly in late June that was headlined, The Real Threat to American Catholicism. And in this piece, you commented on the USCCB's fight with Joe Biden over his, quote unquote, fitness to receive communion because of his support for legal abortion. And at one point in the essay, you note that not all bishops agree that Biden should be refused the Eucharist and that Public disagreement is not a bad thing. And I'm just going to read a line from your story here. Disunity and disagreement are not the biggest obstacles to the church's moral leadership. Unchallenged hypocrisy and blindness are. So I'm wondering if you could talk about what you have in mind when you say unchallenged hypocrisy and blindness, and is this the real threat to Catholicism that's alluded to in the headline?
1: Sure. Well, as an editor, the writers don't always write the headlines. And I, I didn't write this one, but I, I I don't quibble with it. I think the bishops in general have a, a tendency to want to present a united front. I think most of them feel that's in the job description. So they don't like to criticize each other publicly. They try not to fight and they try to issue statements and, and represent a consensus view. And I think that comes out of the sense that that's what the church is at its strength is that We're supposed to all agree about fundamentals. We're supposed to all come to the same conclusion if we start from the same place. And I think that that's not true, and it certainly isn't playing out that way. So it seems to me that worrying too much about unity, as I saw people saying in response to this whole initiative coming out of the bishops' meeting, oh, this is a threat to the unity of the bishops' conference, it's a threat to the unity of the church. If unity just means acting like we all have the same opinion or have reached the same conclusion, when in fact we haven't, I think that's a problem because people aren't dumb. Catholics and not Catholics can see that, well, actually, no, there are a variety of takes on this. And I would rather see the bishops disagree in a public way, if that's what it takes to witness to what discernment really means. Because to me, that is the strength of the church, that it gives us these tools to discern how to apply the basic moral principles that we do have to constantly changing circumstances and to public life and to making difficult decisions about prioritizing. And it's okay with me that they're not all going to reach the same conclusion as long as there's a good faith conversation happening.
0: This is also in your piece. You touch on something that some Catholics find a little puzzling or troubling about the situation. And you write... Why should the election of a Catholic president matter so much to the bishops? You write, the fact that Trump's not a Catholic doesn't make his policies any less a violation of human dignity. And this is something I, I find puzzling. And I'm just wondering if it's puzzling or worse to you. What does it suggest about what seems, I guess, sort of, you know, can be looked at as like purely political names of the bishops' conference?
1: Yeah, on one level, I think it's just all fruit of the decision to focus only on abortion. The the idea that abortion is our preeminent priority, as they put it, I think it was in 2019, in their political statement. My whole life, right to life politics has been an identity piece of being a Catholic. And I think the appeal of it for a lot of people is just that it it seems to make things simple. And it, it feeds into that Sense of well, we all we're all supposed to agree, and that's what it means to be Catholic—that you check off these boxes. And so, if you get into looking at things that way, then the first thing you're worried about is abortion. Then I guess it does matter more that there's a president who has said that he favors legal abortion and also says he's a Catholic. That that seems threatening in a way that a president who campaigns on a promise to restrict the rights of Muslims or to uh, refuse to allow refugees to enter the country or fear-mongering about vulnerable people, or even who oversees the response to a pandemic that's going to kill hundreds of thousands of people who didn't need to die. That doesn't require you to respond. And yeah, I find that maddening because it's, it, it just gets the scale of what seems to be important and what seems to require a response totally out of whack. I think the last several years have been a kind of reductio ad absurdum of the sense that abortion is the the preeminent priority, that the focus only on pro-life politics, which is itself, people don't like to admit it, but is is itself a, a sort of set of steps down from the first principle where all human life is sacred and inviolable, has inviolable dignity. And then that means that the government must protect it legally, which means that there should be no legal right to abortion or no federal funding for abortion. And this is the part where the application comes in and, and you have to start figuring out, well, how do we put that into public life? And and then how do you weigh it in a an election that is not simply a referendum on abortion? So when you get that many steps out, it's no longer reasonable to expect people to have only one opinion. But I heard a homily right before, it was in, you know, the October is is the Right to Life month, right? So I heard a homily shortly before the election in 2016 that basically said without saying, like, well, we're Catholics, and so the most important thing is abortion, and so we have to vote for the pro-life party. And I think that the man who was giving that homily was sincere, but sitting there listening to it, it just felt like, You've got to be kidding. Where have you been this entire campaign? You know, all of the constant indignities that happened every time Trump opened his mouth and all of the things that seemed like, well, this has got to break him. To say to Catholics, Catholic lay people in October of 2016 that you have to vote for the Republican candidate because he says he's against legal abortion, It just seemed like advice coming from some other planet where none of these other things existed. Like you have to put Donald Trump in charge because that's what our faith calls us to do. was just not something that I could accept. And the fact that here we are five years later and that worst case scenario played out in so many ways where what happens when you put a man like Donald Trump in charge? A lot of misery gets unleashed. A lot of problems get worse. And we were in the middle of this horribly botched response to a pandemic, everybody suffering, the church itself suffering in every way to hear again that well but we're what we're really afraid of is this issue of abortion. and that was the one place it, it's complicated because the the pro-life politics did gain ground under the Trump administration unless you think about pro-life meaning something other than abortion restriction. But yeah, I think a lot of people like me look at Joe Biden as someone we identify with. I certainly do. I'm from Scranton. He went to my grade school, to my parish. But the idea that someone could have responded differently in good faith politically to those five years and then be told that they were a public scandal and and should not be allowed to approach the Eucharistic table is just too much to take, I think, for a lot of, of practicing Catholics, especially when that person is someone who is actually trying to fix some of the problems that were caused by the election of the candidate who said he was pro-life five years ago.
0: Yeah. Let's get back to the response to the pandemic. And and you write in the Atlantic piece, in in the aftermath of Trump and of a deadly and demoralizing pandemic, I no longer look to America's bishops expecting moral or ideological coherence. I I, I wonder if... uh, well, I wonder if a lot of us feel this way or arrived at this conclusion some time ago, or maybe not. And I suppose for some readers, this implies that you, and maybe they still do, look, did look to the bishops for these things. And I suspect, in fact, that many of us once did. Was it just the Trump years that have led you to this point, or did it begin sometime earlier? Uh, what might you have to say to people who are hungering for some sort of moral coherence or even leadership? I mean... There was a time when those things weren't as fantastic sounding as they are now. I was a freshman at Fordham University when Cardinal Bernadine came to give a speech on the consistent uh, fabric of life, for instance. And you could expect some coherence, some, some heft. So talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I guess I can tell that I do still look to the bishops for some kind of leadership uh, just by how disappointed I have been over the course of this last year and a half by what I've seen as a failure for that. In the case of the pandemic, when we first, like a year ago March, when we first started seeing what was happening in Italy, when the hospitals were being overwhelmed and the public services were shutting down because of the uncontrolled spread. and From my perspective, it seemed very clear, like the imperative is stop the spread because we can't let that happen here. And the way you stop the spread is by social distancing. So it it just seemed crystal clear. And and at that point, not political to just say, everybody needs to stay home for a few weeks and we're gonna pray that we can stop that from taking place here. And so of course we did. My family, we, we, we cancel everything and I'm explaining this to my kids. And we were waiting, I remember waiting that week for that weekend. They got sent home early from school on a Friday and that was it. And waiting for the Cardinal Dolan, in our case, to issue a dispensation from the obligation to attend mass, which would just be an, an acknowledgement that this is a grave reason. This, it is, we obviously were not going to go already because we had determined that going to mass would be a very reckless thing to do right now. But a dispensation would say to everybody, Yes, I confirm your sense that this is a grave reason to miss Mass this week. But he never did. And he late Friday or maybe Saturday, I remember him putting out a statement that basically just said, well, use your best judgment, which I thought was a a disaster. Because it seemed to me all the people who most needed to be told, like, no, just stay home. We're going to not take it that way. And that was just the beginning. They ultimately did cancel Mass, but only because the state. Issued restrictions on gatherings, and that was the very last minute. I remember masses being canceled that weekend, and for the foreseeable future. But again and again, that was that was the beginning of my being disappointed by what seemed to me like just a really clear cut case of we have our principles that say this is the most important thing that human life is sacred, that protecting the community, that serving the common good is what we do. I thought I would hear every Bishop and every church leader, just saying that very clearly, we can see, you know, here's something that we can do. We can make this sacrifice. We can do it together for each other. And I heard very little of that. And what I heard instead was an adversarial posturing against the government, the state government in this case, saying, you know, we'll be back at Mass just as soon as we can, just as soon as the state lets us. And it was just such a sour note to me all along. And then there were some bishops who were actively aligning themselves with what Trump was saying. But to do anything other than to say, this is very serious, we all need to do everything we can to prevent it from spreading, was to align yourself with Trump, who had very publicly made the decision to act like this was not a big deal and not respond to it in any way and make it harder for state governments to respond to it. So, yeah, it was every few weeks when there'd be a new statement or a lack of a statement or things would get worse, and I still wouldn't see any acknowledgement of, we're all in this together, we're all making sacrifices together. Then there was a time when there was a a call that Dolan was on with some other bishops talking to Trump And it was supposed to be about Catholic education. And the reports of that were released, you know, and it was a lot of Cardinal Dolan saying, oh, how's your beautiful wife and that kind of thing. And it just was so shocking in the middle of just widespread suffering and death. And he had an opportunity to say, President Trump, there are people, even if he just, even if his concerns stay parochial, just in Catholic hospitals, in Catholic nursing homes, in Catholic parishes, we have retired priests who are dying. We have our priests who are putting on hazmat suits to go to anoint the sick. We, we really need you to be focused on, at the very least, not preventing the state from stopping this." And instead he was just doing regular politicking and it, it, the whole thing felt very scandalous to me. And it was a time when I wished that I could hear louder from other bishops, because there were bishops who could see this, I thought, more clearly. So I guess, yeah, that and then at the same time, the Black Lives Matter protests and uh, all of those things were occasioning a real lack of response that wasn't political. Because in, in this case, I think Bishops strive very hard to seem nonpartisan, but I do think sometimes they lose sight of what actually is nonpartisan. And so in this case, the, the Republican side decided that like any expression of concern about COVID is overblown, and that's what liberals do. And so, to line up with that—that that we're gonna we're gonna be cool—was itself a political act, and and it was on the wrong side. <laughs> yeah. To,
0: even the way you're talking about this a local example for me, our bishop here in Brooklyn was instrumental in, in helping fast track a case to the Supreme Court about allowing gatherings larger than a certain size, so that in-person mass could be held. And you're right, just this adversarial and seeming lack of larger concern for what was going on right under their noses, in, in some sense, and sort of focusing on this kind of thing. And I still see not just remnants of this is still something that, that the diocese is making hay of, this victory six months after the fact, but still using it in their diocesan newspaper and emails and things like that.
1: Yeah, well, early on, very early on in the Trump administration, I, I remember this because I wrote about it in Commonweal. Donald Trump did, I think it was an executive order where he was saying that he was going to do away with a regulation that said that pastors couldn't endorse political candidates, couldn't be political. And they did a Rose Garden ceremony where they used this to trumpet their championship of religious freedom. They were winning victories for religious freedom. And I remember Cardinal Wuerl, who was the bishop in in D.C. at that time, was there next to Pence in the Rose Garden along with other religious leaders. And while they said these just preposterous things about how this administration was going to champion religious freedom, when this was an administration that campaigned on not letting Muslims come into the country, it was scandalous to me that they were going along with this refraining of religious freedom to mean just Christian cultural dominance. But the bishops have used that framework all the way along. And so they fell into that as a framework through which to interpret what was happening with the pandemic, that, oh, our rights as Christians are being infringed. And even as we were learning more and more about how the virus was transmitted, and we were learning that attendance at mass was a particularly dangerous thing to do when you get a group of people together in a close space for a prolonged time, singing and talking, and many of them are elderly, many of them are vulnerable, You know that that was dangerous in a way that going to a store quickly or touching, sharing things, that those things were not. It should have been, I think, clearer and clearer that we need to commit. And it wouldn't have been hard, I think, to t- speak to people that way. We need to commit as a community to doing this together. And instead it became, we are, the state is trying to stop us from practicing our religion. and there were there are friendly voices on the Supreme Court. I think it was Neil Gorsuch, I think, wrote a, a completely ignoring the reasons that a religious gathering is different from picking up your food at a bar. So yes, all of that was very was very demoralizing, I thought, especially as we were making these sacrifices and we were doing it you know mass in our living room every week. And telling our kids, like, we have to do this for this reason, and then seeing a, a counterexample coming from the bishops. So when it comes to stuff like that, then I am very grateful that there are some bishops out there that I can look to and feel like, okay, I'm not crazy. It's not. <laughs> That's
0: the thing. Yeah, I'm not alone here, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: This whole project is not a disaster. And I heard that from a lot of people after I wrote that piece in The Atlantic saying, yes, thank you. This is just how I feel the bishops seem to want to present like, well, this is a very simple case. Then if you believe this, then you have to think that. And, and we unfortunately simply can't allow, it will confuse people if we allow Biden to receive communion. And and so many Catholics are saying, well, I know, I'm not, that's not confusing to I'm me. I'm not that
0: confused. Right. <laughs> so okay. thank
1: God there are, we are hearing the voices of some bishops saying, well, I don't know about that. It's not enough, I think, but it is, it, it
0: helps. So sort of at the, the beginning of your remarks here, you, you talked about that first weekend of the pandemic in in 2020 and waiting information from the Archdiocese of New York, to which you belong, in Cardinal Dolan's statement. That was sort of a, well, it's up to you, wait and see kind of statement, I guess. And so now, you know, here we are, I guess. Hopefully coming out of the pandemic, emerging from the pandemic, and Cardinal Dolan and the uh, New York Archdiocese embarked on this uh, media campaign, which I'm sure you're aware of, encouraging now people to return to in-person attendance at Mass, which sounds pretty innocuous, right, uh, now that the pandemic has ebbed. But, you know, there are even commercials for this during Yankee radio broadcasts, reminders to those, if you're attending ball games or going to movies, you should come back to Mass. What do you make of this, though, as a strategy for getting people back? Do you think the pandemic has irrevocably changed things in terms of how Catholics view the Sunday obligation or even in terms of, I guess, their larger relationship to the church?
1: Yeah, I wonder when I hear those things from him, who he thinks his audience is, Mm. because they certainly don't. There's no recognition. There never has been any recognition and there isn't any in these statements of the reasons that families like mine had stopped going to mass. I mean, we've been, since my husband and I were vaccinated, we've been back at it and our kids wear their masks every week, but we stayed away up until then for the reasons I was talking about. That It wasn't because we were afraid so much that we would get it or that our children would get it, but that they would spread it to someone who, for whom it would be a very dangerous thing. And- the archdiocese was hesitant, or maybe unaware of, to, to acknowledge that that dimension, that it, it wasn't just a choice of, well, I'm afraid for myself. I feel like I'm vulnerable, so I'm going to stay away. That it was there was a much broader thing going on, and so when I hear them say, you know, this sort of scolding tone of like, don't forget the third commandment, it doesn't speak to me, and it's insulting because we thought so much for a whole year about how can we. Fulfill our obligation. What are we supposed to do? I'm trying to explain it to the kids that this is we, we can't. This isn't just a vacation, and so I'm not responding certainly personally to that. I think I see some people. You know, I, I complained about it on Twitter, and some of the people who I saw arguing back just they like the idea that the the bishop is out there scolding those Catholics who aren't showing up. But I don't know that. Anybody is listening and saying, like, well, yeah, that's me, but you're right.
0: He's right. Yeah.
1: I think, I think for better or for worse, and probably I think for better, the guilt as a motivator to show up at mass is doesn't work anymore. It's gone. And, and I don't think that alone is ever going to work it's there's also a weird assumption in the way he talks about it as if everybody's really just looking for an excuse to miss yeah we'll take any excuse and so he has to tell us like nope sorry you gotta mm. come back which to me seems a very strange way to talk about worship at sunday mass when you're a, a faith leader why would you assume that people don't want to be there so i would certainly prefer to hear something that respected my own ability of discernment but also something that acknowledged. The contribution that lay people, that parishioners make to the Sunday Mass, that it isn't just a thing we show up to because we have to. It's a thing we do. It's a prayer that we make whole and, and that is literally not the same without us. And so they want us back because they need us there to become the body of Christ, to become Christ present in the assemblies. And that was what I missed from Mass at home when we were praying from our living room, watching it on the screen, was being in the greater assembly and coming together to become Christ present in the assembly so that Christ can be present in the Eucharist. It's a dimension of Catholic belief that we don't hear enough about, I think. And I'd like to see a greater emphasis on that, on the sense of community and of why we gather as a community to pray because that's the sunday obligation not just to show up because if it was just to check off mass then we could just stay in our living rooms and and watch the live stream but to actually gather and to pray together Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i think when lay people feel like they their presence is making a difference there's something for them to do there and not just something for them to watch or endure then i think you want to come back you feel like that's a place that you're supposed to be. You feel like it makes sense for your week to be built around that.
0: Yeah. You don't need, that. you don't need the admonishment.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. And if you do need the admonishment, then I don't know. I don't, I don't know who that is. I don't know who that person is that's going to the ball game and going to the hair parlor and thinking, living a carefree life. And my other problem with that campaign is just that I, I think it, it's rushing too quickly to say COVID is over. And for a lot of us it, what what I would love to see is for them to say, "Please get vaccinated so that you can come back to mass there's been a real i think allergy to saying don't come that 's something that a bishop or a priest should never say, and I think that's a big part of why there was never any dispensation it's but the message has always been if you're scared if you're you know then you can stay home, but everybody else should come back but there's also been a real lack of willingness to say, listen, if you don't, you know, we tried to go back earlier in my own parish, and then we opted out again, because there were too many people who weren't wearing masks. And there was such a hesitation to say, we owe this to each other. This is a thing we're doing. And if you can't join the community in that, then you should stay home. Mm. And now I think vaccines are the same way. If you are eligible to be vaccinated, and you're not doing it, then please don't put people's lives at risk. But we're not hearing that. It's still, we're still talking about it like it's a lifestyle choice. Like I've chosen to worry about COVID. And so the the, Arch, the bishop is saying, well, that excuse isn't valid anymore. But for a lot of people, it still is. And part of the reason it still is because other people have refused to take it as seriously as they should. So I don't know, good luck. I mean, I know there are a lot of churches that are hurting and I hope that they can fill back up. But for me, my disappointment in what I have seen as a failure of witness is more likely to affect my relationship, I think, to the institutional church than my having taken a year off of being there in person. I'm very stubborn, and I'm holding on to my institutional connections. Yeah. <laughs> and we're, we're on vacation this week, my family, and I made them. We, my husband and I looked up, where's the closest church? And we dragged them out first thing in the morning on Sunday so we could go, because we don't need the bishop to tell us what it means to, to honor the Sabbath. But if he wants to make a statement that would really make a difference, I think talking more about the actual risk and our actual duty to the common good would be both a good catechesis and a a good act of public service.
0: Molly, it's been great having you here today. Thank you so much.
1: You're welcome. It's always a pleasure.
0: You can find Molly Wilson O'Reilly's essay, The Real Threat to American Catholicism, on the Atlantic Magazine website website. Molly will also be featured on a panel hosted by Georgetown's initiative on Catholic social thought and public life on July 27th to talk about the controversy. Commonwealth editors also comment on Biden, the bishops, and communion in the July-August issue of the magazine, which is available now. Now, that's also our special summer fiction issue. and includes a number of great pieces, an essay on Walker Percy, an interview with Chris Beha, reviews of new novels from Jhumpa Lahiri and Rachel Cusk, and a controversial biography of Philip Roth. Plus, an essay from a new collection of work by Alice McDermott. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by assistant editor Griffin Olinick and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.